Okay, this is Hebrews 2020, and we are now at increment 112, continuing really on the line of our last increment with another message having to do with the Son of God in general. And we have been what I engaged in what I call exegetical archery where we're firing the arrow from Hebrews 4.14 into Hebrews 9 in order to expand on the idea that Jesus, the Son of God, our great archpriest, has passed through the heavens. And so we've shot our exegetical arrow into Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll reiterate the first few verses of that before we go on. Hebrews 9 Speaking of the earthly tabernacle, the reason we're doing this is Jesus' passage through the heavens is likened to his passage, the passage of the Old Testament priests through the outer court of the tent into the holy place and then into the holiest place of all where the high priest enters once and alone and not without blood how this compares and contrasts with the otherworldly tent into which Jesus Christ has entered through the veil. So Hebrews 9, 1. Now the first covenant, and this of course compares the old with the new covenant, the Sinaitic covenant with the new covenant, which is the subject of Hebrews 7 and 8, mostly chapter 8. He goes into verse 9, or chapter 9. Now the first covenant also had its regulations for service and a this-worldly sanctuary. Please notice that. A this-worldly sanctuary. For a tent was erected, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, was the lampstand and the table of the loaves of presentation, or the loaves of the presence. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies, having the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which there was a golden jar that contained the manna, the rod of Aaron, the almond rod of Aaron that sprouted, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above it, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the place of expiation, sometimes called the mercy seat. Concerning these things, we are not now speaking in detail. Please notice what he said. We are not now speaking of in detail. The reason for this is he has different fish to fry. His whole point is to impart incentive to his listeners to hold fast to their confession of Jesus as the Son of God in the time of what we call today a cancellation culture that was more severe then than the one even that we have now. So what is specifically he wants to focus on, as we've said, it starts at verse 6. Now these things having been thus set up, the priests enter the first room all the time. To complete their service. But into the second, the high priest enters alone once a year. 
Leviticus 16, 17 speaks of that, and not without blood to offer in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. By this repetitious action, that is, by this repetition is action of the priests and by the annual service of the archpriest, the Holy Spirit, he says, is making it clear that the way into the Holy of Holies had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a parable for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented, which are not able to completely cleanse the conscience of the worshiper, having to do only with foods and drinks and various ritual washings, regulations, he says, involving the body, the outer flesh, imposed until the time of the new order. Now, we've said that new order, deorthosis, also called the time of rectification, correlates with the times of the restoration of all things. In Acts 3.21, it has to do with the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth. Inasmuch as the new order was inaugurated with the once and for all unrepeatable sacrifice of Christ, followed by his resurrection, elevation, exaltation, enthronement, coronation, and present session. This new order, deorthosis, will be consummated when Jesus appears a second time, says the writer. He appears a second time, and when he does, it will not be to deal with sin. This new order, new order, again, will be consummated finally when Jesus appears a second time, having appeared the first time to remove the sin of the world. He already did this in 926 of Hebrews. He appears the second time with universal salvation. And I say universal for a reason. He appears the second time to those who are waiting for him. Now, sometimes you get the picture of those who are waiting for him involves a few or a small minority of people waiting for him. But when Hebrews 9.28 speaks of those who are waiting for him, it refers to all of humanity and even all of creation, which Paul portrays as waiting. They're waiting for the apocalypse of the sons of God or the unveiling of the sons of God, which comes with the unveiling and the universal appearance of Jesus Christ. So whether people know it or not, what they're waiting for, what they're anticipating, is Christ. Waiting for him refers to all of humanity and all of creation, which is waiting for him 
whether aware of waiting specifically for him or not. That's the point. A few years ago, Paul McCartney wrote an uplifting song called Hope of Deliverance. It didn't get too much play compared to the other songs he did, but Hope of Deliverance. Everyone is hoping for deliverance, even though not everyone is hoping for that deliverance in the person of the deliverer whose name is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's our deliverer, Philippians 3.20. We wait for a deliverer from heaven, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall come and change these bodies of humiliation into body, a body of glory like his own in Philippians 3.20. He's able to do this in 3.21 because of the very same omniscience, or rather omnipotence, and all power, that he's able to subject all things to himself. God the Father said, Sit at my right hand, son, until I make an, your enemies a footrest for your feet. That means the Father subjects the enemies of his son under his feet. But because the Father and the Son are one in act, the Son will also be he who subjects all things to himself, as Philippians 3.21 says, in connection with Psalm 110.1. When he comes, he will transconfigure our mortal, corruptible human bodies as part of a process by which his omnipotent power will bring everything in subjection to himself, acting in concert with his father, once again, who said, sit at my right side until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, quoted in Hebrews 1.13. This will be a universal restoration of all things that is inextricably linked to the appearance of Christ at the juncture of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It does not say that he took away only Israel's sins in Hebrews 9.26. It says he took away sin itself. By this is meant that he is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the whole world in John 1.29 and in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. In fact, I would argue against some commentators that the declaration that the teaching, ma teaching pastor makes in Hebrews 9.26 is influenced by the apocalyptic mindset that Paul operated from in Romans where he personified sin as a formidable eschatological enemy that is to be vanquished and annihilated. The universal restoration that all of creation anticipates has already begun, and that's important. Romans 12.1, Ephesians 4.22, 23 and 24 indicate that that restoration has already begun with us and with the renewal of our minds and renewal of what is called the spirit of our minds, which is the heart of our minds. 
It is experienced in some meaningful measure and to some discernible degree by those who acknowledge that they have been crucified with Christ and who nevertheless live, but live only because the risen Christ lives in them. In a sense, that's part of our confession. I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Critical, central, indispensable to our confession is Jesus, the Son of God. Now, we could ask, what are you waiting for? We hear that all the time. What are you waiting for? Someone may answer, I'm waiting for deliverance. But we who understand the gospel would say, it's not a matter of what, but of who we're waiting for. I'm waiting for the deliverer who is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who passed through the heavens and is there now, and whom God will send from there, according to Acts 3.20 and 21, to come and recover all, like his ancestor David rescued all that the Amalekites had taken in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 18 and 19. That's also 1 Reigns chapter 30. So back to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 8. By this, that is, the repetitious action of the priest and the annual sacrifice of the archpriest, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the Holy of Holies had not yet been manifested or revealed. He had not yet revealed the way. The way is what Hebrews will later call the new and living way, also known as the freshly slain way. It hadn't yet in the old tabernacle, in the old tent, and the old these old practices, that new and living way had not yet been manifested while the first tabernacle was standing. Now the way, again, this may be familiar to you if you hear Jesus say, I am the way. Hodas. The way is the new and living way that has been inaugurated through the veil or the curtain, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ. Hebrews ten nineteen to 20. When his flesh was torn, the curtain was torn, as it were. In other words, through his death, the veil was rent. The curtain was torn between the holy place and the holy, holiest place of all. So when Jesus passed through the heavens into the holiest of all, he entered through a torn curtain into the presence of God. That's why Jesus Christ and him crucified is all that I want to say, said Paul. The torn curtain is the flesh of Jesus, Hebrews 10, 19 to 20. Jesus, the eternal word made flesh. 
the flesh of the one who became altogether like his brethren, made of blood and flesh, in Hebrews 2.14. He became altogether like us, except for sin, as we're going to find out in 4.15. So that he who knew no sin would become sin so that we, all of us who have known sin, all of those whom he became like in his incarnation minus sin, would be made the righteousness of God in solidarity with him. Now that the desert generation that we studied for a long time did not know God's ways, same word only in the plural in Hebrews 3.10, has a reference to the way that had not yet been made manifest. They did not know, in other words, the way of the cross. They did not know the one who said, I am the way, in John 14.6. That ignorance is still a lack that needs to be augmented in our own time and among those who style themselves as Christians. Let's continue. Hebrews 9.11. But Christ came, the archpriest of good things that have already begun to come. That's interesting. That tense there, already begin, or have, that have already begun to come. The archpriest otherwise known as the mediator between God and humankind, the archpriest of good things that have already begun to come with this greater and more perfect tabernacle. Again, the word for more perfect here is T-E-L-E-I-O-T-E-R-A-S. You can tell that it's sort of related to tetelestai, or talaio, or teleo, or epiteleo. These are all words that reveal the completion that Hebrews is all about. Completion, regarding completion. Remember 56 of the Psalms, aistotelos, regarding completion. And so again, but Christ came the archpriest of good things that have already begun to come with this greater and more perfect tabernacle or complete tent, not made by human hands, not of this creation even. If it's not of this creation, it must be a new creation. Then he says in verse 12, not by the blood of he goats and young bulls, the Old Testament priests approached and entered the Holy of Holies with the blood of goats and bulls. Not Jesus, who went in once, not once a year, once and for all. Not by the blood of he goats and young bulls, but by his own blood. Remember the blood groove going the length of the blade of the word of God. By his own blood, he entered in once for all. There's another catch word for you. Epaphax. Epaphax. E P 
P-H-A-P-A-X. F-H-A-P-A-X. Once and for all. Unrepeatable. Once. Not annually. Not once a day. Once and for all. It's found in Romans 6.10. Jesus, who died and rose from the dead, never dies again. It's once and for all that he rose. Hebrews 7.27 uses the word F-H-A-P-X. Hebrews 9.12 here uses that word, and Hebrews 10.10. It says he entered once for all, entered in once and for all, or once for all, into the holy places, plural there, indicates that he entered into the holy place itself and also the holiest of all, having obtained eternal redemption. Yes, I'm using the word eternal. It's also age-abiding, age-during, aeonion, however you want to say it. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a young cow ceremonially sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, and they did, verse 14, how much more the blood of the Messiah, who through the age-abiding spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, so that we can serve the living God. Now, regarding the phrases, not of this creation, which is found in 9-11, redemption for the age or eternal redemption, but sometimes translated redemption for the age, capital A-G-E, and regarding the phrase age-abiding spirit in 9.14, and other uses of the Aeonios word group, that's A-I-O-N-I-O-S, Aeonios, the Aeonios word group, there is a very helpful passage in a book that I find invaluable called Terms for Eternity. It was written by Ilaria Ramelli, whose masterwork, of course, has to do with the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis, which was one of the most brilliant pieces of research and writing I've ever had the privilege of studying. But Ilaria Ramelli and David Constan, K-O-N-S-T-A-N, also wrote a much smaller but very important book called Terms for Eternity. On page 66 of that book, they speak of its use in Hebrews, the terms for eternity, or aeonios terms as found in Hebrews. They write this, at Hebrews 6.2, and then they make the point almost certainly not Pauline. In other words, they don't believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. Most people don't, now at least. At Hebrews 6.2, aeonios signifies specifically of the world to come. I was delighted to read that because we've named the age to come and the world to come, future world, from Hebrews 1.6 and other places. At, he, at in Hebrews 2.5 also. At Hebrews 
Aeonia signifies specifically of the world to come instead of eternal. Now this is extremely important because we know that people have talked about eternal fire, eternal punishment in Jude 1, 6, and 7, and Matthew 25, as if it's everlasting and enduring forever. But here, it means of the world to come instead of eternal. When the author speaks of, I'm still quoting, the resurrection of the dead, Anastasios Tenecron, and the judgment that will take place in the next world, that's Krematos Aeonios, he's speaking of the future world. And then finally they say the resurrection and the judgment will take place in the Aeon, A-I-O-N, A-I-O-N, will take place in the Aeon, in the future world. I like how they use that phrase. In note 74 on the same page, 66, they wrote this. Hebrews 5.9, regarding Aeonios' salvation, they say the entire passage, also in Hebrews 9.11 and 12, plays on the opposition between the present and future time. Christ is the archpriest of goods to come. Now, they use the Byzantine text here, the goods to come. I use the Nestle Allen text, which says goods that are coming, but also have already come in another sense. Not of this creation, but offering a ransom for the next world. Then they use the word Lutrosin Aeonion. It should be noted that the next world, in which we're calling future world, from, again, Hebrews 1, 6 and 2, 5, is a world without end, however. <clears throat> the future world is a world without end. The present heavens and earth are not a, a heavens and an earth that are without end. They're due for a transformation. So we should note that the next world or future world is a world without end, and so the salvation and the redemption, Hebrews 5, 9 and 9, 12, both called aeonios, are for an endless age and for a world without end. Moreover, eternal spirit in Hebrews 9, 14, as many English translations have it, is accurate when it says eternal. Because when the word aeonios is used or predicated of God or anything about God like his life or his love, it is eternal in the sense that it has no end and no beginning. And so eternal spirit, through whom Jesus offered himself as a sin offering to God the Father, is accurate because it describes the Holy Spirit who is in fact eternal, having no beginning or end. Theologically speaking, he was eternally or is eternally spirated by the Father and the Son, breathed eternally 
in an eternal, internal procession in God. Christ offered himself through the eternal spirit to God as a lamb without blemish, as a sin offering that is efficacious for all of humanity throughout all of the present clash of the eons and into and throughout the age that will abide forever after this evil age is ended and after death has been utterly annihilated. Death has been defeated in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, but it has yet to cough up all of its victims, and it will in resurrection, by the resurrection. The good things to come, therefore, that the Byzantine text translates Hebrews 9.11, these are things that have already come in some measure, though these good things will be brought fully and for all when Christ appears a second time not to be a sin offering for the sins of the world, but to bring salvation for all of the world. When he put away sin, he put away the sin of the world. In Hebrews 9, 26, John 1, 29, 1 John 2, 2. Not just Israel's sins. So when he comes again with salvation, it's with salvation for the whole world. Remember, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but th- so that through him the world will be saved, and the world will be saved. His mission didn't fail, didn't partly succeed and partly fail. It succeeded. So, this is one commentary on Hebrews where the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ is highlighted as it is elsewhere in the Bible, in Romans, in the Gospel of John, in Revelation, in Galatians, and throughout the scriptures starting at Genesis 1-1, ending at Revelation 22-21. So I'll say it again. The good things to come have actually already come to us. Though these good things will be brought fully and for all when Christ appears a second time, Hebrews 9.28, not to be a sin offering for the sins of the world. He did that already at the junction of the ages in his incarnation. But to bring salvation for all the world. Good things is what the gospel or the good news announces. And so there's a solid link here between Isaiah 52.7 quoted in Romans 10.15 and Hebrews 9.11. The good things that have already come to us and that may be experienced in some meaningful measure and to some discernible degree by the same eternal spirit through a cleansed conscience, a purified heart, and a renewed and steadfast human spirit. In other words, by our fellowship with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit, we can have an ongoing foretaste of future world. Though certainly not yet perfect, certainly not yet complete, there is an incomprehensible glory that has yet to follow. Now, Christ having secured age-abiding redemption for us, 
and having the honor of a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens into the presence of God for us, that honor that he received in Hebrews 5, 4 and 5, as we're going to see, that honor of Hebrews 2, 9, we see him crowned with glory and honor. That honor of this great archpriest who's passed through the heavens, even Jesus, the Son of God, that's the honor that is for a community that loses its worldly honor because of its confession of faith. The point to be made through our exegetical archery, then, is that by a comparison of these two passages, Hebrews 4.14 and Hebrews 9.1-14, our great archpriest, Jesus the Son of God, passing through the heavens is analogous to the archpriest of the Levitical order passing through the outer tent into the holy places, then beyond the curtain into the place of utmost holiness. Now it's to this place of utmost holiness that Jesus will save us according to Hebrews 7.25. And until that moment, Jesus lives, and we see him there living in the power of an incorruptible life. Hebrews 7.1, compared to, make that Hebrews 7.16, compared to 2 Corinthians 13, 4. He was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. And the power of God in which he lives is how he makes intercession for us perpetually until he brings us to the utmost place of holiness and salvation. And so, as the priest of the old and the now passe order passed through the outer court of the tent into the holy place, and then once a year the high priest into the holy of holies, by virtue of the blood of others, that namely means animal sacrifices, the blood of animals, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, Hebrews 4.14, passed through the atmospheric bands around the earth, through the celestial heaven, and into the heaven itself where he ever lives to make intercession for us after having achieved once and for all and forever redemption of us by his own blood. By his own blood. By virtue of his own self-sacrifice and death on Calvary's cross. The word of God that penetrates to the division of soul and spirit, therefore, now penetrates, as it were, to make a clear distinction and a differentiation of our consciousness between this worldly tabernacle and the heavenly one. It creates, as I said, a differentiation of consciousness in the hearers and the readers, in you and me, that enables us to leave the old order And for us to leave this old world and its values and so-called virtues 
and to be totally separate from its magnetic hold as well as the hold of this world itself. That's the application to us who are not in the same historical and cultural situation as the initial readers, but who nevertheless must be occupied with an otherworldly holy of holies and with Jesus our Savior. The priests, all the time daily, the high priest annually is contrasted with our great high priest or great archpriest who once and for all and forever offered a sacrifice and then entered into the holiest place of all. So now we're going back to Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, having a great archpriest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, when I think of Jesus, the Son of God, I think of John 20.31, because for quite a few months, we studied the fourth G. And the whole purpose of John was so that the reader would decide for himself or herself that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they would have a measurable experience of the age to come. So therefore, having a great archpriest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast. There it is again. Let's hold fast the sailor's tattoo on his four fingers of both hands hold fast in the movie master and commander that i mentioned in the last increment let's hold fast our confession that word krateo is used also in revelation 2:13 and 2:14 as well as 2:15 in a negative sense as well as 2.25 and 3.11. The message of the Son of Man to the churches in Western Turkey is the message of the Holy Spirit to the initial readers of Hebrews and to us, the 21st century readers of Hebrews. Now to set some tracks to run on for our next increment and to continue on in this increment, number 112, let's consider Craig Coaster. He's one of the commentators I'm reading, Craig Coaster. I think that's how you pronounce K-O-E-S-T-E-R. On page 293, he wrote this helpful paragraph for us to get a kind of perspective and sense of what's going on in Hebrews and the initial readers. He said, although solidarity among those addressed by Hebrews was eroding in the face of friction with the wider society, He cites 10.25 and 13.13 of Hebrews. The author seeks to bolster commitments by affirming the confession that might bring them out of their lethargy. Quoting or citing Hebrews 5.11. He goes on to say, at the time Hebrews was written, Christians no longer fit. Now I want you to look at that very carefully or listen to that very carefully carefully. Christians no longer fit into the dominant Greco-Roman culture or into the Jewish subculture, each of which had its own 
high priesthood. Rome had its high priesthood in the cult of the Caesar. The Jews had their own high priesthood of the Levitical order that continued because of not understanding the one-time sacrifice of the Messiah. He goes on to finally conclude, the author offers listeners a way to maintain their identity by insisting that they do not lack a priest, but have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, the same Jesus whom they already confess to be the Son of God. Now that's why I'm reading Coaster's commentary. I'm also reading the commentary by William Lane. Lane is also quotable here on pages 103 and 104 of his first of two volumes in his Hebrews commentary. He says, the use of the verb kratain, that's our word to hold fast, kratain, another form of krateo, means to hold fast or cling to. He says, again, the use of the verb kratain, hold fast and cling to, supports the conclusion that homologia, or confession, has reference to a specific formulation of faith that had once been accepted and openly acknowledged. Now, when I think of that, I'll pause for a moment, I think of the confession that Jesus made before Pilate of his own messiahship and his own being son of God. I also think of Timothy and his testimony before many witnesses in 1 Timothy 6, 13 and 14, 6, 12, compared with, of course, Matthew 26. But he goes on to say, once again, the confession has reference to a specific formulation of faith that had once been accepted and openly acknowledged by the members of the community. In this context, the designation of Jesus as ton huion tu theu, the title of our increment, the Son of God, is almost certainly an echo of that confession. The description of Jesus as high priest is not itself taken from the confession, but serves to interpret it, he says. And then finally, he says, the appeal for adherence to the confession has the function of promoting the faithfulness of a community at a time when they were displaying a lack of concern for spiritual integrity and steadfastness, citing 2.1.3.6b and 10.23. It appropriately concludes the unit introduced in 3.1, in which the faithfulness of Jesus, notice that phrase, in which the faithfulness of Jesus as high priest establishes the context for calling the members of the congregation to faithfulness. Now given those two quotes, one from Coaster, one from Lane, let's notice the duality within this verse. Exposition and exhortation. The homily is that blend throughout. Balanced and blended with a slight weight 
falling on exhortation a little more. Exposition and exhortation. The PT exhorts, let's keep a firm grip. I think hold fast is the best translation you can get here. Let's hold fast on our acknowledgement. That also means let's hold fast to our acknowledgement of what we know reality is or who reality is. Our confession, our acknowledgement of what or who we know as reality. What is this confession, this profession, this open affirmation, as we might call homologia, that Jesus is the Son of God? The one in whom God has spoken with finality. The last word in these last days in Hebrews 1-2. Jesus, the Son of God, that title makes explicit the identity of the Son who was first introduced in the exordium of this homily in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Jesus as the Son of God is the gist of the confession that the readers are to hold fast. The fact that Jesus is also their great archpriest and ours incentivizes them and us to boldly hold that confession. Hold it fast. This confession is even called a boast to be boldly acknowledged because it is boasting in the Lord. It is called an unwavering confession in the Lord who delights, as Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, he delights in the exercise of mercy, and that's toward all human beings in Romans 11.32, and all of his creation in Romans 8.19-23, whose righteousness, that is, whose righteousness of God is saving, and whose justice is justifying. Let me say this again. The confession is even called a boast to be boldly acknowledged because it is boasting in the Lord who delights in the exercise of mercy toward all human beings and all of his creation, and whose righteousness is saving and justice is justifying. Now the New Testament, a literal translation from the Syriac Peshito version by James Murdoch, translates the exhortation this way, let us persevere in professing him. This requires that which Psalm 51.10, the Septuagint 50.12 calls a steadfast spirit. A steadfast spirit is what I want to close on today. Is that which God restores in us and renews in us and keeps going in us. So that we keep a firm grip, krateo, so that we hold fast on our acknowledgement of what we know and who we know as ultimate reality. Namely, Jesus 
as the divine and human Son of God in whom God has spoken with definitive finality in these last days and whom we might call Logos, his Logos, the Logos of God, meaning God's complete thought. We too are urged to hold fast this confession of Jesus as reality in an era where so-called, so-called science has become an idol. Science at its best is merely an incomplete act of human intellect. But Jesus, the Son of God, is the complete Word of God and all that God is. To have his mind, to have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16, is to be in possession of a complete act of divine and human intellect. So not only do we have nothing to be ashamed of as Christians in an era of scientism, we have a confession of which we may be boastful, a confession that is of reality itself, the reality which Jesus is. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Thank you, Father, for the many opportunities, 101 of them that you've given us in Hebrews alone. Since we've parted. Father of our Lord Jesus, renew a steadfast spirit in us so that we may steadfastly hold fast our confession of Jesus as your divine and human son. Thank you for the incomparable incentive that comes to us through the revelation of Jesus as our great archpriest as we pass through this wilderness of necessary tests and trials and refining fires that purify our faith so that it will be commended in the day of his universal apocalypse and of the apocalypse of the sons and daughters of God, his siblings, his brothers and sisters. As he is proud to call us brothers, father, brothers and sisters, we, his brothers and sisters, are proud to call him our brother and the Son of God. Amen.